Alex White, it's great to talk to you. Uh, thanks again for joining me today. We're talking about your new book, Alien, the Cold Forge from Titan Books. It's out now. Uh, but before we talk about that, tell me a little bit about how you got into writing in the first place. Sure. So uh, I've always been a big movie buff. And when I was in high school, I used to complain to my friends about basically every movie that we went to go see. And they eventually said, well, if you think you can do so well, why don't you write a movie? And so I started writing movies in my study periods. And then I went to college, did some independent studies and screenwriting, and then found out that I don't really like the movie industry very much. I did actually work in production for a, a brief stint. And then uh, started writing novels, finished my first novel in 2006, and then in 2013, managed to land an agent, not with the same novel, because debut novel is a misnomer. That was like my fifth novel. <laughs> so that's how I got into writing. So tell me a bit about um, uh, your genre of choice. Uh, when, like when, it, when you sit down to write, um, do you, is it about a cool idea you have, or do you tend to think about, um, what you're going to write in terms of what genre it's in, which is kind of a weird question, but no, 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 it's, it's all good. Um, yeah, I actually don't think of the genre first. I always start with the idea, you know, I, and that, that's resulted in sometimes, you know, I get this comment, you know, people say, well, this is really genre bending writing. And it's like, uh, -huh. uh, that wasn't my intent. My intent was to just work on the idea and hope that everything lined up. Um, you know, the idea for alien, the cold forge actually came from a user experience conference that I was at. Um, double came in with their tele, their latest telepresence robot, uh, that was how they presented. They they had the telepresence robot come on stage. It's basically like an iPad on a Segway and with a face. And the face, you know, was the presenter. Yeah. And I thought that that was so cool for an alien novel. I, I, the idea of having a character, you know, uh, go through like a, a contaminated area, you know, or a dangerous area in a telepresence robot and, uh, help other survivors and how the other survivors would deal with that person and feel about that person because they were in a telepresence robot, didn't have actual skin in the game, so to speak. And so that was the, the yeah, so that was the idea for Alien the Cold Forge, and that was how everything kind of coalesced around that. And then the, you know, for uh, a big ship at the edge of the universe, it comes out in July. That's my orbit book series. The, the idea actually came from reading Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which is funny because it's a fun romp space opera kind of book series, but uh, it was, there was something that struck me about one of, the, one of the murderers in Cold Blood was a fan of these salvage maps. He would buy them from a merchant in, I think, Akron, Ohio, but they were supposed to be like salvage maps of like the Mexican coastline. And uh, he fantasized that he was going to buy these salvage maps, take his money down to Mexico and spend the rest of his life diving in shipwrecks. Mm -hmm. And I was like, who's making those salvage maps? What kind of human being does that? And that was the first character that became the space opera series later was this person who fakes salvage maps for a living. Interesting. Yeah. Like I've, I've had uh, projects in the past I've worked on where that's the question I, I ask myself before writing anything. I, I wrote a screenplay called uh, Cold Patrol which uh, for an Australian producer and uh, it got some, some buzz. It got picked up by the trades, that kind of thing. But yeah. that was, the, and, and actually I'll just tell you about it uh, quickly. It was based on the real serious patrol. Those, those uh, patrols up in, um, in, uh, in Greenland who patrol that area. It's just two of them and a, and a pack of sled dogs. And I asked myself, what kind of person would do that? 
You know, what kind of person would go live up in the middle of nowhere in, in those kind of conditions for years at a time with these dogs? And that sort of got, you know, is, is very helpful in getting into a story. Um, so, when it kind of, so when it came to Alien Cold Forge, um, is, it, is it you pitching a, a story idea or does Titan, who has a lot of these alien books in, the, in, you know, the, in, in their extended universe going back to the 90s, I think, um, mm. uh, is there a story Bible of some kind or a group? Does your idea have to sort of line up with the books that have come before or can it be its own thing and is the Cold Forge kind of its own contained story? Like how does that all work when, 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 when Titan has such a, such a big catalog of alien books? Sure. Well, I mean, so first of all, I was a huge fan of the alien tie-in novels back in the 90s. Um, that was back when Dark Horse had the license. Mm -hmm. Basically, uh, all the books now that say Titan um, used to say Dark Horse back in the day. Uh, and, uh, up until, I don't know exactly when the license changed over, but um, what I do know is that, uh, yeah, so, so Titan... Uh, uh, yeah, I had to pitch them and it had to fit in with the canon books that they were trying to put out. Um, so I couldn't, I couldn't just pitch any old thing. I had to, uh, I had to really workshop the idea with the editor, uh, who's, uh, his name is Steve Saffel. And I met with him over a couple of conventions and, uh, we, you know, we just talked through it and, and, um, workshopped it and got everything got all our ducks in a row and then sent it off to Fox who gave us approval. So, uh, but in order to get into that pitch meeting, you know, I had to already have another book published and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, what's kind of cool about the, the way that whole thing worked out was that the publicist for my debut novel, every mountain made low worked at Solaris. She was a big fan of every mountain made low she she raved about it and then about midway through because it's the publishing industry she changed companies she actually ended up going to work for titan and she sent me an email that was like hey i'm at titan now if you ever want me to send you any swag or anything let me know uh, you know of course free stuff i decided to go check out which licenses they had and lo and behold there's alien so i immediately get in touch with my agent and i said you know we've got to we got to we got to write an alien book like we you got to get me in that room. Uh, I've got an in with the publicist person maybe. And uh, he said, oh, I've already been talking to the editor. You want to do alien? Perfect. <laughs> you know? And so it, so, it sounds, it, so it sounds like it happened fairly, fairly quickly. Once, once that connection was made, the personal connection there. Uh, actually no. <laughs> <laughs> so how many years ago? How many years ago was this? Uh, 2015. I pitched a, I pitched oh, wow. it three times basically to the same editor it was always kind of a remind me of your pitch oh yeah i love that one mm. it's not the right time <laughs> you know um and of course you know when you're when you're writing in the same stable as people like jonathan mayberry you know like i'm a baby author we got to make room for that guy you know and and so like you can't you know you can't release a bunch of books and compete with yourself so you know i kind of i kind of got I got my swing finally and I I'm, I'm excited that it's coming out. Do you reach out to any of the other authors of the past book? Like I'm thinking uh, like some of the authors you've, you know, mentioned. Oh yeah. Reach out yeah. to them and say, Hey, I'm writing the next one. What do you want me to keep in mind here about your characters or, or oh. <laughs> maybe they're totally new characters. I, I, 
Yes, no. um, actually, they are totally new characters. I, I, I was, uh, I was instructed not to use any current characters. I could use movie canon characters if I wanted to, but oh. they didn't end up being very, very useful to the plot. So they're only kind of some passing references. Um, you know, it's 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 mostly a self-contained story, though it has broader-reaching implications, far broader-reaching implications potentially. But um, you know, that all just depends. It, also, the uh, to kind of pop the stack a bit and get back to your earlier question, how how to deal with uh, the massive catalog of alien books? The only the five that Titan specifically commissioned are considered canonical. Everything else is extended and i mean dark horse was an extended canon long 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 before titan ever rolled around because uh, they had the earth war series and stuff like that where alien 3 effectively never happened and hicks and newt were like the main characters mm -hmm. so um so yeah i mean uh i didn't have to compete luckily i didn't have to deal with the 20 some odd novels that <laughs> And all the comic series and all that other stuff. Just just a few. I just had to target a few. And the easiest way to deal with that was staying completely in canon with the movies. So I'm not sure. Um, it, it sounds to me like this, this Neil Blomkamp project that was going to follow Aliens directly and, and like you say, disregard uh, Alien right. 3. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. It sounds like Ridley Scott uh, was not really having it. He wanted to get back into that world and... and control it for better or worse. Sure. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but I mean that it, 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 it felt like a, um, non canonical, you know, dark horse idea, um, in that way to me, it was like, ah, well, you know, we can't just disregard all the, you know what I mean? This is, this sure. is the problem we're having in this modern time. Uh, <laughs> and I hate to jump into the movie world, but I mean, this is based on the movie. No, I love talking movies. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> But it seems like we are in a weird time where the very idea of canon is being um, redefined. And creators, uh, writers and directors are seem more willing to come in and just say, mm, I didn't like those movies. I'm going to forget about them and just we're, we're going to start here <laughs> for better or worse. What, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, it's it's got its, it's – well, now I haven't seen a lot of movies revoking – Canon. I, now I, I know the you know Star Wars Legends was a real sore spot for a lot of people um, when they changed everything in the extended universe into non-canon. Um, but uh, I haven't seen a lot of movies disregarding other movies in the series. Uh, can you give me an example? I guess it feels. You're right. Actually, it it feels more like the conversation is is happening. Like, sure. And people are getting wound up. I'm probably spending too much time on film Twitter, but the, 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 <laughs> what, what is Canon? I mean, certainly when, when Disney uh, announced that the extended, extended universe was not going to be considered Canon, that rubbed people the wrong way. Though I suppose I never really considered it Canon myself to begin with. I Me neither. Uh, well, I guess it's more. It would be to write a movie in that series, like where you have, yeah. 60 something, 100 and something books tying you down. It'd be impossible. Yeah, it'd be impossible. <laughs> you, just, you just write about a character getting coffee because, I mean, I guess that's pretty much it. You know? I mean, I, I think what bothered people is that, that fans of the, you know, um, Thrawn 
trilogy or whatever, just kind of would like to see that uh, slavishly uh, put to screen. Yeah, you know what I, I mean? mean? It's like yes, that. that yeah, I think that's kind of what I think some people thought might happen. Well, and um, you are essentially telling people that that thing that you've hoped for for the past 15 years is not going to happen. Sorry. You know, J.J. Abrams had a new vision. And I think that there's a real there's a real feeling of ownership amongst the fans that, you know, that I appreciate. But, you know, I also totally enjoy new takes. The only time I really expect true canon is if it's the same director or or it's kind of build as a slate of movies like the Marvel Cinematic Universe you know that kind of stuff like if they suddenly went non-canonical in the Marvel Cinematic Universe I'd be blown away whereas the DC Cinematic Universe is like a complete wreck so <laughs> and the way fans can can rally against a movie that they feel has betrayed them from a franchise they love that doesn't really translate to the book world does it I mean if you know what are the chances that alien fans I mean alien is a big franchise in terms mm -hmm. of movies. I don't know how well it does in, in book form. I assume well enough if they keep making, you know, publishing the books. But I mean, what are the chances that, you know, uh, Alex White's going to get hate mail from people who think Cold Forge? Uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I, I've, got, uh, I've got a story about this. So, so you okay. asked if I'd met the other authors. I did meet the other authors, but I did not like, uh, I didn't ask them what they wanted me to do because, you know, I love them, but I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I only care what my editor wants me to do. <laughs> but the, um, so I was sitting on a panel uh, with somebody who does like a Robin Hood type fantasy setting. And, okay. and I had mentioned, you know, oh, publishing, you know, it's, yeah, it's, this is, my debut just came out and this is really hard for me. And she goes, yeah, well, if you don't like this, try getting death threats. And I was like, death threats? Uh, over what? And she's like, over my Robin Hood books. Oof. And I was like, really? There's no canon for Robin Hood. Like, it's, it's not like a real person. And then, uh, you know, it's not like a movie property. I mean, it is, but it's not like a copyrighted movie property. Um, or I guess it's not a trademarked movie property. Is better. Well, it's public domain, really, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes. Robin Hood, Any, can anyone, can, anyone who want, wishes can make a Robin Hood anything. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so there was... So she says, oh, I got death threats all the time. And I was like, oh, man, that stinks. Well, the guy next to me, was uh, he was writing Arrow books. And he chimes in. And he's like, oh, yeah, me too. I've gotten five or six. And I was, I was like, really? From Arrow fans? Like, that's kind of a – I mean, it's as superhero shows go, go it's pretty wholesome. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and then – the the guy at the end of the table, Andrew Gaska, says, yeah, I've gotten some too. And I was like, what do you write? And he's like, I write for Planet of the Apes. And I was like, I can't imagine being so mad about Planet of the Apes that you threaten someone's life. They all said, just get ready. You're going to get all kinds of hate mail and personal attacks and stuff like that. And to me, on the one hand, uh, you know, that, that, that was a little nerve wracking to hear. But on the other hand, it's like, at least that means people bought and read it, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> the, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. That's an Oscar Wilde quote for you. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I was curious if uh, some of that translated into the in, into the book world, but I guess oh, it, it does. Me like it does. All, those, <laughs> all those all those Robin Hood heads out there. Right. Robin uh, heads. You know, Robin heads. They're in um, 
they're in great number. They, they are legion, and they're they're looking out for for what you're doing with their beloved uh, character. I guess. Well, you know, and it's interesting because you got to think about it. Like the people who read tie-in novels are the super fans. They're the people who care the most about the franchise. It's true. I and 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 that's why I appreciate them. I you know, and, and by the way, uh, my expectations have been calibrated fairly poorly because all of these people have been coming to me on Twitter and online and saying really lovely things. Uh, I think the only mean thing that I got was a comment on uh, bloody disgusting <laughs> showed up. I mean, I, of course, I read the comments. I always read the comments, uh, <laughs> and it was. Oh, this was uh this this is the plot of Alien Resurrection, and that movie sucked. So this book is gonna suck. Was basically like the gist of it. And yeah, that uh, bloody disgusting is one of my stomping grounds uh, as a blogger. <laughs> and and um, not to crap on on the readers there, but there's definitely some uh, I would say passionate um, passionate <laughs> yeah. fans. Let's not let's not bite the hand that feeds you there. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I, I thought it was us just as hard. Believe me. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, and you know, I, I thought it was interesting because, like, you know, the person's not necessarily wrong that the that the book's plot bears a superficial resemblance, and you know, and it bears a superficial resemblance to Labyrinth and all that other stuff because you know, aliens and super science go together. <laughs> um, but uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I can if, if anybody's if anybody's on bloody disgusting. If you original commenter are on bloody disgusting, I promise you, I promise you that this is not the same book. It is not the same as Alien Four, which I would strike from the canon if I could. <laughs> <laughs> I would get rid of uh, Alien Four and I would get rid of all the AVP movies. <laughs> it's such a bummer because Alien Four um, is a movie that I return to um, often. And there's so much I like in it, but it it just there's something about it that doesn't work. Um, oh yeah. At the end of the day, there's some real sort of drag, um, uh, sort of sluggish moments, but the the production design's great, and the the you know cast is is you know. Oh, it's got Michael Wincott doing what he does best, which is dumb. oh yeah, that voice. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. the 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 um you know the whole underwater part I think is great. And oh, that was really really good. It. it was when that was really when they were they were pushing the CG aliens. Um, and we've, we've seen a return of that um, in Covenant to mm. mixed effect. And I have to say, you know, even though that guy in the suit can't do a lot, it just, there's something about, you know, having the, the, the physical creature uh, on the screen that I think really just helps the franchise. And it's, it's, they, they haven't really nailed it as far as I'm concerned with the CG alien. If you if you go watch if you go watch uh, a lot of the making of Covenant, there's there's a lot more practical effects in it than you might think. Interesting. I was actually just listening to the um, commentary on that one, and uh, Ridley Scott's always interesting to listen to. Well, they uh, let Adam Savage on set, so if you go find him in Tested, for example, you can you can watch all of his on set stuff, and uh, they show like there's a lot of that set was real, a whole lot of it, and a whole lot of the alien was real as well. Um, so they had some real hero shots and the, the actor of course is an amazing athlete that they got to put inside the alien, just like the first alien, you know? So, um, so going back a little bit, uh, with the franchise, like what's your relationship with the alien franchise? I, I assume we're about the same age, but I, I, I feel like I might be a little bit older than you, but I could be wrong. And, um, so, so what's your relationship with the alien franchise and like, are you an alien guy or are you an alien guy? You know what I mean? Okay. Yes, and I've got this is a complicated answer, all right, and it involves growing up. But the um, 
when I was uh, when I was a uh, a kid, you know, we weren't allowed to have like horror movies and action movies and stuff uh, in my house. And you know, and, and like I lived in the middle of nowhere in Alabama, and so and I still do. And, and, and so the, the, you know, all the other kids, all the other little rednecks around me were watching just the most violent, gory, awesome stuff. And I wasn't really allowed to. And then finally Terminator 2 came out and it like won Oscars for its special effects and everybody was going crazy for it. So, you know, my parents took me to the blockbuster and we rented Terminator 2 with some family friends and I watched it and my parents were like, oh my God, is your mind ruined? Uh, no, it was great. I loved it. And I wanted to see more action movies. And that was when said friend of the family unveiled that he had a treasure trove of wonderful 80s action movies that are both great and terrible. He had, you know, so he had like Predator, Predator 2, Alien 1, 2, 3, you know, and then he had uh, uh, Warlock, which has the single best smash cut ever in a movie. All these titles are great. I'm waiting for the one that's bad. Oh, no. No, none of them were bad. It was like a greatest hits of high-budget 80s action. And so, you know, he starts me off with Alien. And as a kid, you know, like, Alien is pretty cerebral. Um, and so I, I enjoyed it. I was scared. Aliens was really where it was at for me because it was, it was easy to kind of grasp all the concepts in it. It was very it was, it was sugary, kind of dissolves in your mouth instantly, you know? gives you a rush. Um, and, and so, uh, uh, yeah, so, so, and, and like all the stuff that's super subtle in Alien is like played at volume 11 in Aliens. So like, you know, it's like, oh, the, the company might not be so nice and, and they actually are doing these horrible things and then, you know, the, then they get Paul Reiser to come out there and be the embodiment of evil. You know? <laughs> um, and, I loved, and I still love Aliens. I still think it's like one of the greatest action movies of all time. But it's an action movie. It's not a horror movie. It's an action movie. Um, to me, I like everything is about the tension of running and shooting, you know. And then uh, now that I'm older, I love Alien. Um, Aliens will always have a special place in my heart, but uh, joining the, the mainstream corporate workforce and actually kind of learning a lot more about what it's like to be an American, uh, Alien really speaks to me. <laughs> and um, it was that corporate dystopia that I fell in love with uh, from reading uh, the Dark Horse books like uh, Song of the Swords and Labyrinth, which were, you know, all about the, the corporate influence. So. Yeah, so I'm an alien guy. You're an alien guy, yeah. That was and, my first know, question to the editor as well when I was going to pitch. I had like four pitches prepared. Well, I didn't tell him I had four pitches prepared. But like I memorized all my note cards and everything. And I went in there and I said, are you an alien guy or an alien guy? Well, it's an important question. You got to, you know, we have to figure this out. Like I remember Aliens was the first one I saw. And I, for a long time, didn't even know there was others. And... Uh, <laughs> Cause I think it was like somebody taped it off TV or it was, I saw it, we had it on a VHS or whatever. I mean, this was, people have to understand. I mean, this was pre-internet. You didn't just type in aliens and then there's your IMDb page with all right. that, you know, and I was talking about it in, I, I, I mean, it was as late as high school with somebody about aliens. And they said, talk, I, they asked me if I'd seen the, the first one and I was like shocked. 
that there was a first one. And I was obsessed. I was asking him about it. What's it about? What's it like? Who's in it? What? You know, because for whatever reason, as many times as I've seen aliens, even though, you know, in retrospect, obviously it's, it kind of starts in a place where it, you know, she, she's damaged clearly from an experience. Right. <laughs> she's having these bad but, dreams. Yeah, like, I mean, in retrospect, like, it's like, but when you're a kid, you kind of take movies for granted. Like, Oh, this is just a self-contained story. That's starting me in the middle of a story here. Anyway, I see, I, I feel like an idiot now, but and <laughs> I remember tracking it down, finally finding it, finding it, watching alien. The first one thinking, whoa, this is a different movie. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah, entirely different. I can't imagine how, how, yeah, your expectations would be. Because, you know, I think the first time I saw Alien, you know, I was like 10, you know. And, and, and so it wasn't like, <laughs> it was hard for me to understand it, really mm-hmm. understand it. Whereas Aliens, you know, and that, that, so, so going into Aliens, I had the expectation that this one would also be good, but hard to understand. And it was, no, there was, there was no subtext. It was great. <laughs> I, um, I loved that movie so much as a kid. I, I watched all of them, you know, dozens of times. And, you know, like I used to have just like a day where I would go from alien to alien three, uh, just regularly. And, and my parents wondered if there was something wrong with me, I'm sure. Um, but I loved it so much that I tracked down a, a copy of the Laserdisc director's edition of Aliens because that was that was just a myth back yep. then. Yep. <laughs> and I actually found one because of Suncoast and and rented a Laserdisc player. I couldn't afford it at the time because that technology was and still is prohibitively expensive. Uh, it was a myth and it was confusing because depending on where you'd seen it the last time, you would have seen the hallway, um, you know, automatic gun scene and the stuff at the beginning uh, with Ripley's kid and stuff. You would have seen that or you hadn't. So you'd watch another version and go, hold it. Wasn't there? Like, and it, it didn't, right. Some people had seen those scenes. Some people hadn't. I mean, no one could figure out how to see them again. And you're right. There, there was a laser disc that came out that, 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 that had those scenes in it again. And, um, yeah, so it was very what, – what a strange time. Yeah, I know. It was so expensive, too, to, like, rent that. I mean, between the cost of the Laserdisc and the, the, the cost of the player rental, I probably paid 100 bucks, you know. And, and that, was, that was all of my savings just so I could see this movie for one night. And, you know, and looking back, I'm glad all that stuff was cut. I really am. It makes for a much pacier movie when you don't have the – colonists going in the truck and then the, the, the guns in the hall were cool, but they, they weren't nearly as good as the sequence that follows. Yeah. It's, it's everybody, you know, sort of longed to see that scene with the guns, but the more times I've seen the film since then, because the Blu-ray came out and it's got both versions, nothing kind of comes of the scene. Like right. the aliens, like the, the, the guns eventually run down uh, to the end of their bullets, but like, then it ends, then the, the aliens are gone. So you, I, you, you can see how you could cut that scene and it wouldn't have any impact on what happens in the film. Right, exactly. I oh. want them to like crash through the dang door after that. Yeah. Happens, you know, like. <laughs> and if they had done that, they wouldn't have been able to cut it because how do you cut? Right. Well, I guess you, you, you could probably find a way to cut around it. But, but it was interesting seeing it again recently and going, oh yeah, like nothing kind of, ha- like this is really cool, but nothing, it doesn't, um, sure. Or tell the story in any way, or or drive the plot forward. Um, 
in any way. It kind of just ends. Oh, speaking of movies driving plot. So here, this was really strange. Um, so you had asked earlier if, uh, if they had like a story Bible or something like that. Yeah. The answer is no. Um, <laughs> it's whatever Ridley Scott wants to do. Exactly. <laughs> and, and um, so when I was awarded the contract, Prometheus was out, but uh, Covenant was not. And no one really knew exactly what was going to be in Covenant. So I did all the research and tried to spoil myself as hard as I could because I wanted to know, but I really couldn't get anywhere. I mean, they're, they're pretty good about embargoing that information. And so I went, uh, um, so, and my editor had said, look, we've got the license to Alien, but we don't, we can't, you can't use anything from Prometheus at all. And I had a suspicion that Prometheus's implications were radically going to change the alien biology. And xenomorph biology is a major part of the book. I worked with virologists and entomologists. Uh, there's, there's one of my friends literally has a doctorate in virology and entomology. It's like the perfect storm of person you should ask about xenomorphs. And, um, and so uh, I, I wanted to get the biology believable, but I didn't know what Scott was going to do next. Because I think we'd all kind of assumed that aliens come from larvae. Uh, inside the facehugger and that there's a there's a larval implantation or something like that but yeah they're really cagey about it in the movies they don't really talk about the mechanism and that left the door open for covenant to become what covenant is so covenant comes out in the middle of it and because it says the word alien at the front of the title i'm allowed suddenly to use everything from prometheus oh. uh, and it, it solved a plot hole that I was really working on pretty hard. And it was just like, I was watching it in the theater, just like, this is great. This is perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, speaking of getting stuck on a plot hole, uh, this is, this is a question. I, I, I see a lot of writers talking about this uh, phenomenon of, of, of writer's block. This is probably something only interesting to, to writers, but um, mm -hmm. some people deny its existence. Writer's block is not true. Is not real all this uh, talk about writer's block. Um, do you believe writer's block happens? Does it happen to you? And sort of what's your process to get through it? So I think it happens to some people. It, it's, it doesn't happen to me. Um, part of the reason why is because I'm a career long creative professional. And so, you know, when you're in college and you don't exactly, you know, get your first creative job as like a graphic designer and you don't know what to do next, you just try a bunch of stuff and hope that something works out. And when it doesn't, you, you'd be sad, right? You've, you've hit a block, but over a long enough period of time, you have to learn a series of exercises to switch your brain on in that way because you must perform. It's time to go to work and get your paycheck. Um, and as a writer, it's the same thing. I mean, um, uh, you know, we were talking before the interview about how I, I have had to write three books in a year and a half uh, when previously, you know, I'd, I'd had forever to write my books as long as I wanted. Um, so you have to be able to switch on. My, my process for getting through is I have a five question framework. If I run out of scene and I don't know what I'm doing, uh, I answer these five questions. The first three come from David Mamet and they're questions of clarity. So who wants what, from whom do they want it? What's going to happen if they don't get it? Those questions all have to be answered as part of the scene if you're writing a conflict-driven scene. Um, and and most, most 
scenes, most Western scenes are conflict driven. Um, and then, uh, so that's a question of clarity, right? Who wants what, from whom do they want it? What's gonna happen if they don't get it? Those are the first three. Then I ask myself, what are the readers expecting? Because the last thing I wanna do is have you get to the scene where you're really looking forward to something only to have you be completely disappointed, right? Um, so I still have to deliver some portion of your expectations. I can subvert them, but I still have to get somewhere close. And then uh, the last question I ask myself is what don't the readers expect? Now that's not to say that there should be a twist in every single scene, but you must deliver some value that they couldn't predict. That could be a really excellent description of the magic forest that they're in, or it could be a really crazy like uh, chase scene with, you know, a xenomorph hot on your tails, you know, whatever. Um, it has to be something that they didn't see coming because otherwise that scene should just be done in exposition, right? If, if the reader can predict every single thing that's going to happen in the scene, why do they need you to tell them? So if you, when you sit down, you write down the answers to all those questions. I like to handwrite it in pen because I, it, it engages a different part of your brain. Right. Uh, you're, the, the way you're speaking about it is almost like putting yourself through an exercise. That's you know, exactly what I do. Answer the questions, get out a pen and paper, force your brain to work through the problem um, and come up with creative solutions. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, part of part of writer's block, I think, for a lot of people comes from you know, not really, not really knowing the answers to those questions. You know, you sit down at your scene and you're like, man, uh, you know, I, I want to get them through this thing so I can get to the space battle afterwards, but I really don't know what to put here. Well, that's, that's immediately when you need to start seeking that undercover value, that hidden value, it, you know, and, and I do, I do a lot of stuff. I'll go, I'll go walk around. I'll, I'll go, um, you know, if it's nighttime, I'll have a drink or, you know, smoke a cigar or something, you know, just anything to break your rut. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, and I, I'm also lucky. I have a job that's a day job that sends me all over the world. So, I, you know, I can kind of, Oh, I'm bored. I don't know what to do. Oh, I'll go walk around Amsterdam. You know, kind of. <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's interesting you bring that up. I think a lot of people uh, don't realize that writers also have other jobs. Like, um, even, you know, authors who are published in the big five, um, oh, yeah. they're, they're, they're teaching, uh, they're, um, you know, doing, doing, doing something else. It's, it's tough to make a living at this uh, writing thing these days. Oh, absolutely. Well, and you know, Tobias Bakel does a really good job of compiling, uh, self-reported data every year on authors and, you know, talking about, um, exactly kind of what you can expect to earn. So the average advance for a big five debut is, uh, now I'm not going to tell you my numbers because I, I killed it. It's way better. My agent's awesome. But the average advance for a debut is $3,000. Yeah. The average worth of a tie-in novel is $1,500. So, you know, anybody who says, you know, well, it'd be really cool to like be a famous author. Well, no, that's not a good reason to do it. It's actually well, even, it. <laughs> and I think uh, you know, you know, if you're a New York Times best-selling author, quote quote, I don't think you even need to sell many books in the first week 
to make the list. Now, I, I, I might be wrong, but I think it's only a few thousand. I mean, it's not like these people are selling a million copies in the first two weeks and that, that's how you get there. You know, you can become, as long as you're published. Yeah. You are bang on correct. And, you know, there's a, um, there was a, a mystery writer that I uh, went to a conference with recently. His name's Sheldon Siegel. And his day job, he's the special counsel at Shepard Mullen, uh, which is a really prestigious firm. He he's hit the bestseller list several 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 times and he can't quit. You know, yeah. um, and and, and it, you know it, it makes matters even worse if you're the primary income earner for your household because you know, uh, you know even if you were able to get it up to that day job level of pay, you're still gonna have to figure out what's gonna happen. You know if your day job pay is good. <laughs> you know the, the more day job pay you get, the less writing pay you can have. So. Anyway, it's, yeah, but, you know, I have every intention of quitting my day job one of these days. One, you know, but it's, it's unfortunately a long way in the future. Yeah. Um, well, Alex White, thank you for talking to me. I think that's going to wrap it up for today. Where can people find you on the internet? Sure. Well, you can find me easily on Twitter at Alex R. White. Um, middle name's Rufus. So too many other Alex Whites. <laughs> um, and then you can also go to my website, www.alexrwhite.com. And, uh, you know, my books, uh, Alien the Cold Forge comes out or probably came out by the time you hear this. Uh, I think it is out, yeah. April 24th, yes. So. Oh, no, it's not quite out then. Ah, well, there we go. It's going to come out April 24th. Oh, trust me, That's I cool. know when the release day is. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can also catch the beginning of my uh, epic space opera, A Big Ship at the Edge of the Universe, from Orbit uh, on July 26th. Another UK publisher, no? Or June 26th. Oh, man, see, I just said I knew that. Yes, another UK publisher. And my first publisher was Solaris which is the UK as well. They're part of Rebellion Publishing who owns Judge Dredd. And if you want to read a book about uh, an autistic Southern Gothic dystopian ghost story, um, Every Mountain Made Low is currently out and you can get that from Solaris. You can find it in any outlet online. In the publishing biz, we call that a genre mashup, my friend. <laughs> I know. I uh, uh, Actually, I do have to say, uh, early, early on, uh, somebody we had submitted it to one of the publishing houses. And again, I don't kiss and tell, so no names, but they sent back a letter. They said, we really love this. And we, we would totally buy it, except we bought a really similar book. And I'm like, who's that person? Like we should form a genre. We should form a collective. <laughs> right. It's, it's me and you, buddy. We're the genre now. <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you so much for the interview. And it was uh, excellent to get to talk to you. And, and, um, uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully uh, picking up a copy of your book. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it.